Welcome to Mortification of Spin, a casual conversation about things that count. With Carl Truman, Todd Pruitt, and Amy Bird. Mortification of Spin is a weekly podcast from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Let's join this week's conversation. Well, welcome to Mortification of Spin. I'm here as usual with my co-hosts, Todd Pruitt and Amy Bird. We have a special guest today. I'm going to describe him to you and see if you can guess who he is. He's wearing a clean shirt, new shoes. He doesn't know where he's going to. Silk suit, black tie. He doesn't need a reason why. They come running just as fast as they can, because every girl's crazy about a sharp-dressed man. (laughs) We are speaking, of course, to the preeminent ZZ Top, if we can use the correct pronunciation, the preeminent ZZ Top fan in the Reformed world, T. David Gordon. Welcome to the show, David. Until you just introduced me, I would have said it's great to be here. (laughs) (laughs) Well, David is Professor of Religion and Greek at uh, the wonderful institution Grove City College in western Pennsylvania, and he's written numerous articles, none of which have ever caused any trouble or controversy whatsoever, (laughs) including, I think, the famous one, Why I Believe in the Insufficiency of Scripture. I think that was the first article I ever read by David. We want to talk to him today about two books that he, he wrote a few years ago now, but continue to strike a chord in uh, reformed culture and they are his why johnny books johnny being a rather sad case because according to the title of one johnny can't preach and according to the other johnny can't sing hymns david what inspired you to write these two uh excellent thought-provoking books well the uh i suppose the the motivation for the two is particular to each in some sense but if you frame the question that way uh, what unites the two uh, is the media ecological perspective from which each was written. I certainly wasn't the first to call attention to imperfection in Christian preaching, nor to the curiosity and even divisive character of this sudden exclusion of traditional hymns from the Christian liturgy. But if I brought anything to the table in each case, it was not a theological training, which is commonplace, many of us have that, but it was that uh, I've been reading about uh, what we now call media ecology and teaching it since 2003. And uh, media ecology is the discipline associated primarily now with people like McLuhan and Postman, but it goes back to the Federalist Dialogue of Socrates, where his objection to writing had nothing to do with the content of a particular book, but uh, he was raising questions about how does a culture that has manuscript, how does it know about reality and how does it communicate with its parties? compared to oral cultures. And so that question of how the introduction of or removal of a medium to or from a culture is what we now call media ecology. And since that field fascinates me, in each of my subtitles, you'll see some mildly media ecological reference. So, for instance, the subtitle of the first, Why Johnny Can't Preach, the media have shaped the messengers. That's a little takeoff, of course, on McLuhan's The Medium is the Message, right? And then in the case of the second one, Uh, Why Johnny Can't Sing Hymns, How Pop Culture Rewrote the Hymnal. There I'm raising the question, what happens when commercial music enters the culture for the first time in the period of 1890 to 1930, roughly? How does that alter the entire human experience of what we call music, 
when it goes from being something we ourselves do to a consumer option like Pepsi, Cola, or Coke, how does that influence even our conversations about the matter? So what motivates both of them in one sense is the belief, justified or not, that a media ecologist has a take on these questions that maybe others wouldn't have. So what is wrong with preaching today? Yeah, the, uh, at first, you know, I, I thought it might be a subjective thing on my part. I was being a nitpicker and so forth. But then I ran into many members of uh, pulpit committees. Mm. Uh, this would have been mm. back in the early and mid-80s who said, uh, as we conduct our search, we've just given up on finding a good preacher. We're wow. going to hire someone who's good at other things. And wow. after I'd run into three or four of these, I thought, well, that's a, that's a staggering thing for a pulpit committee to say, yeah. you know, an almost cynically complacent thing to say at the beginning of a search is we don't even expect to find yeah. a capable preacher. And so then I realized it wasn't just me, but others mm-hmm. felt a similar way. And about that time, I reread Dabney's lectures on sacred rhetoric. I guess it's published now as Dabney on preaching. And when Dabney mentioned in those in two chapters, the seven cardinal requisites of a sermon, not excellencies, but the seven cardinal requisites, these are just sort of things that have to be there. Mm-hmm. So he mentioned, you know, unity, order or organization, movement, point. And in the case of a sermon, it also had to be instructive. It had to be expositional, and it had to be, as he called it, evangelical in tone. These seven criteria were not merely subjective criteria. These could be applied. You could rate a sermon on a scale of 1 to 10 on each of these criteria. And so I started more precisely listening to preaching and finding that it was very rare for a sermon to satisfy what Dabney would have called the seven minimal requirements. He called them cardinal requisites in the 19th century. I think we would probably say, what are the minimal requirements? requirements. Mm -hmm. You know, to get an A or a B in this class, and I say, you've got to do the following. These are things that just have to be done. And then I might permit uh, extra credit for doing something beyond that. But if I say these are the class requirements, I think that's what Dabney meant, that a sermon just has to have these elements. And I found increasingly that it was hard to find a sermon with all seven. And in fact, in some of the saddest situations, it didn't have any of the seven. You have a great line in your preaching book uh, saying, What I care about is the average Christian family in the average pew in the average church on the average Sunday. And the problem there is not that we don't have great preachers. In many circumstances, we don't even have mediocre preachers. Yeah, that was my concern. When I first mentioned that I was thinking of writing this, I mentioned it to some friends and acquaintances and so forth. They would nod and say, ah, you're right. Ours is not a day of great preaching. Mm-hmm. Wow. And that's when I realized, no, no, I'm not <laughs> lamenting the lack of great preaching because we probably rarely had great preaching. Many mm-hmm. of the people we would think of as great preachers, you know, one can make a pretty good case they were not great preachers, in fact. No one would, would tolerate Edwards today, I don't think, for instance, <laughs> and I wouldn't tolerate Spurgeon. So uh, <laughs> even, our, even many of our so-called great preachers had enormous flaws. Mm-hmm. But that, yeah, my point is, I don't care if there's great chefs in the United States. I want every young man and woman in Grove City who's 12 years old having a decent, solid, nourishing meal tonight. Yeah. And I don't care if they ever go to Emerald Lagasse's restaurant. Yeah. Yeah. So as you look at what typically people are gaining, and because I don't want to bring in some of the obvious problems in liberal churches and that kind of thing, but as we look at generally conservative evangelical and maybe even reformed or reformedish churches, what do you fear people specifically are not getting that they need to be getting from the preaching? 
in their churches? What is typically the most absent elements that need to be there? I think that what's missing is a real vital engagement with God addressing his people through Holy Scripture. And I don't think you have to be Bardian to say such a thing. I think you'd find that is exactly what Calvin would have said mm-hmm. if you read uh, uh, Wallace's Calvin's Doctrine of Word and Sacrament, that the word priest is an actual encounter with God right. who addresses his people. And in, and in itself, this is a great thing, a remarkable thing, because after Genesis 3, God could have abandoned the human race. His last words to us through all eternity could have been, Cursed is the ground because yeah. of you, etc. Right? He was under no obligation then right. to undertake any recommunion with rebellious creatures again. And so the fact that God addresses us afterwards through prophet and through the Baptist and through the incarnate son and his apostles is itself a stunning thing. It's a stunning reversal of Genesis 3. And so in real preaching, in real authentic preaching, as Calvin described it, what we actually do is we meet God. And my concern is, in a post-literate culture, a largely post-literate culture, if people do not read to find what is there, they read to find what they expect will be there. And so what happens is, for many ministers, they themselves just don't know how to submit to a text. They don't know how to read a Robert Frost poem and let Frost say what Frost is saying. They read a Robert Frost poem and see if they can find a line somewhere in it where he happens to say what they already think. And so their literary sensibilities are not such that they have the capacities imaginatively to actually sit before a text and allow it to alter them. Hmm. And so if you think of the Wittgenstein duck rabbit, right? We often use that as academics, that you have that nice little sort of woodcut drawing up there, and you ask your students, what do you see? And if you have three classes, you know, one classroom, you say nothing other than the question, and the other, you say, do you see the rabbit? And the third, you say, do you see the duck, right? Well, you get about a 50-50 response on the first class. Some think it's a duck, some think it's a rabbit. But if you say, do you see this rabbit? 100% say they see the rabbit. And if you say, do you see the duck? 100% see the duck. So if you paraphrase Wittgenstein into epistemology more generally, I think the point is this. Humans do not look at, they look for. In our acts of knowing, we tend to look for something. We don't look at. And so then when we come to the Holy Scriptures, which are profoundly literary, I mean, they're literature, they're language, we also then do not have the sensibilities of the pre-radio, pre-television, pre-internet generations And so we especially don't know how to find in the passage a vital word from God because it isn't even vital for the minister. All the minister found is what he expected to find when he went there. So how do you cultivate this ability to – if I understand you correctly, David, you're saying in order to preach properly, you've got to first of all be able to read properly. Yeah, that's right. How do you cultivate that habit of reading properly? Yeah, well, let's tease out your analogy. You're getting it right. See, the minister's a conduit, right? He's a conduit for the Word of God. He's not the incarnate Word of God, and he doesn't have the prophet's abilities, but he is a conduit. So he studies the Word of God in, and he preaches the Word of God out. And so, as you suggested, in his study, right, this is how the Word of God comes into him so it can then go out in a sermon. And so what used to happen 
was the nature of our education itself was fundamentally literary. And people were trained in, in, in the reading of texts and reading them carefully. They all knew Latin. They went to seminary. They already knew Latin and Greek. Remember that when Machen wrote his grammar in what, 1921, he mentioned a lamentable circumstance that some people in seminary don't know Greek, so everyone else did. So what happens is, and you say, well, aren't we teaching people to read in school today? No, we're teaching them to read and to skim for information. We're teaching them to read the way we read in the grocery store. How many ounces? What's the cost? How many preservatives? How much MSG? We don't go through the grocery store looking at the shelves for a literary experience. We go looking for information that we've already judged would be pertinent to us and our interests and concerns. And that's how we educate young people today. Even if we were to introduce them to literature in a ninth grade or 10th grade literature class, we ask them how they feel about a passage. We don't ask them what the passage says. So we've just abandoned the notion that a text could convey the intention of someone else that might be passed to people in his generation or others. We just don't teach people that. Do you think that's a legacy of, of romanticism? Do you think it goes back several hundred years, or do you think it's a more recent vintage? Well, as, as a media ecologist, I'm trying to augment the other well-known concerns with my particular concerns. And so I think if you go back before romanticism, if you go back, for instance, to the nominalist realist debate in the medieval order, that's where you get the real roots of deconstruction and so forth. Words are just names. There's no reality. There's no God who makes a thing and then calls it a thing and therefore imputes his meaning to it. So I think it goes back even further. But what I was trying to add to it was not the philosophical roots, but the media roots. What happens when we live in a culture that doesn't know the world by language, but through image? Mm -hmm. What happens is we are literate in the minimal sense of the term, but you and I know that literacy can actually be on a, a continuum of you know, five to a hundred, for instance, or zero to a hundred. And people a century ago were literate in a different way than we are literate. Hmm. They could read a text and experience it the way uh, Lewis says a person can when he surrenders to a text and allows the author to take him on a journey, as it were. And Lewis says, you don't fight with your tour guide throughout <laughs> the journey. You let him take you on the trip. And then afterwards, when someone says, how was your trip? You're entitled to say what you thought about it. But you can't fight him all the way. So what happens is you learn to just trust in your tour guide to take you somewhere. And then afterwards, you talk about the trip. I just don't think we're teaching people that sort of a thing. Well, that kind of complicates the issue, too, because not only does that affect good preaching, but I think we also have a problem with good listeners sitting right. in the pews, mm -hmm. too. So um, how right. You know, what is the challenge there then for the pastor who is concerned about this and uh, needs to train up good listeners right. in his congregation? Yeah. You see, and that's the excellent question, because every preacher knows that he oftentimes is standing before a group of people that want him to skip all of the, the, right. the, the stuff about the actual kind of exegesis and then, and then exposition of the passage Get itself. Get right to the and, application. And, yeah, <laughs> tell me what this says about me. Mm -hmm. And they may not put it in as crass a terms, although some do, but, right. but that's oftentimes the bottom line demand is hurry up and get to me. How do we train? How does a, a preacher train his folks to listen differently? Yeah, it's actually in the general sense, the same answer to every pastoral question and give attention to yourself 
mm-hmm. and to your doctrine, right? So mm-hmm. both to your behavior and your teaching. The two tools ministers have is by their teaching and preaching, and then by their example, we convey Christianity. Yeah. I think both are the case here. So, for instance, on the instructional side, every now and then when I'm officiating at a wedding and I do Ephesians 5, one of my points, and of course those are briefer homilies, but mm-hmm. one of my points is, believe it or not, and despite all the money and all these nice people and everyone dressed well, uh, this is not all about you. Mm-hmm. Paul says this is a mystery, and it's about Christ and his church. It's not about you, right? That's a bold thing to say at a wedding, right. isn't it, right? right? That's the only controversial thing I've ever said, other than despite what Carl said. <laughs> it's when I stand before a couple with all their friends you know, around them, and I say, this is not all about you. Yeah. So I do think sometimes in our teaching itself, we actually have to teach them the doctrine of preaching <laughs> and yes. tell them it's not my job to make you as narcissistic as the culture has made you, but actually to resist that. But the other thing is, Amy, this is more your end of the question than Todd's. The other thing is, remember that every exposure to a linguistic act in some small measure reshapes the synapses in the brain and makes us more and less able for the next, right? It may be that for many people, the only exposure they have to reasoned, discourse is in the pulpit every Sunday. Mm. All the more reason, therefore, to give them a well-crafted example of reasoned discourse. Mm -hmm. And they will learn it that way, if no other way. I learned this from my old pal at Gordon Conwell, Doug Stewart, who still teaches Old Testament there. Doug, he's been around forever. I think he started during the Lincoln administration or something (laughs) like that. Been there a while. Doug used to fill pulpits as an interim throughout New England when churches were between pastors. And Doug's an old expositor. That's all he teaches is expository preaching. When he would first go to a church for eight or 12 months, the first few Sundays, people would say that, you know, they're having a little difficulty, quote, following him. And that's because Doug's an expositor. And they want them, they just wanted to go straight to, you know, do this, Mm -hmm. tell stories about a little girl and a bunny or whatever it might be. (laughs) And here is Doug explaining the passage. And he said, almost every time within two or three or four months, people would greet him at the door and say, hey, we really appreciate the effort you've made. You're coming around. We're finding it easier to follow you than we used to. <laughs> well, Doug knew he hadn't changed anything right. but his socks and underwears in 20 years. So he hadn't <laughs> changed anything. But now they were following him because mm-hmm. they had learned to hear a reasoned argument right. from Holy Scripture. Well, I mean, you can sit for years under bad preaching. And, I mean, not only... Does it make you a bad listener of sermons, but a bad reader of scripture mm-hmm. as well? I'm, I mean, I know too, just having sat under bad preaching. I mean, you know, there's preachers with great intentions and they, they read the text and then they take it in like maybe a moralistic direction and they might even use the gospel, the gospel, the gospel over and again, but you never hear the gospel and you don't even know where he is in the passage. And, and people leave thinking, Oh, you know, I really heard the word today. And, you know, they might have been convicted in a lot of ways, and and he might have a big personality, even. You know, I find more and more, even with books, that people have a hard time separating personality from the content and ability of what's being said. Yeah, that's the culture. And our one hope is that the image of God as God gave it to us is plastic or flexible or malleable that, you know, the, the neurologists call it neuroplasticity and neurogenesis are the terms they use. But humans 
do and can change neurologically. Mm -hmm. So what happens is every perceptive moment in life is a moment in which we are employing certain perceptive tools. And those shape us to do the same. They're like mental push-ups. And then every time we're exposed to something different, if we put up with it long enough, we're doing a different set of mental push-ups. So what happens is if you've listened to, let's say, bad preaching for 20 years, this doesn't mean it'll take you 20 years to learn to listen to good preaching. It would probably take you 20 times, Mm -hmm. if that. Mm -hmm. It's the same as the argument truth and error. People say, well, why would a college like Grove City, why would you try to teach historic Christian and Western principles? in a culture where no one else is doing it. And I say, look, it only takes one small match to lighten a 20-foot by 20-foot room that's in total darkness. Error has no chance at all against truth Mm. because you can't make dark darker. Dark Mm. is just dark, Mm. and truth is light, and it illumines wherever it goes. And it's also the case that you cannot completely eradicate the image of God in people. You can, mm-hmm. you can let them be fat couch potatoes in every sense of being a fat couch potato, but those fat couch potatoes can get back into shape. Mm-hmm. And if people hear preaching that at some existential level they know is doing something for them, even if they can't put their finger on it, they start to listen differently. And when I fill pulpits, which is what I do now, I haven't pastored for almost, I don't know, 1998 or whenever it was, a long time ago, but I fill a lot of pulpits. And when I'm in a pulpit for the first time, I can normally tell my wife afterwards if they have a good pastor or not. And Mm. she says, how can you tell that? And I say, if in the first few minutes of my sermon, I look up and people are paying attention to me, that means they have been rewarded for paying attention. Mm. If they aren't paying attention the first three minutes, it's not because Gordon has bored them. Give him a chance, and he will, of course. But (laughs) if they're already gone in the first three minutes, it wasn't my fault. That's the result of people who were not rewarded for paying careful attention, and so they, as you say, they stop paying careful attention. But when they are rewarded for doing so, interestingly enough, they change their attentive habits, and before long, they're listening very well. Yeah. Have you ever preached at Todd's church, David? I'd be interested to us. Uh, yeah. Oh, yay. So yeah, that's how the, we're going to do this. Huh? The hope for Todd's church is if they get rid of him, it won't take that long to reverse the damage oh by the sounds of it. In 20 years, I would say. <laughs> David, I'm going to ask you, uh, this is a, a leading question here, because I think I know what you're going to say. But Should preachers read poetry? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think one of the most unconvincing things in the book was when I recommended that preachers read verse, Mm -hmm. and they do it throughout their life. And I knew that this would seem crazy. Even people who otherwise liked the book said they weren't too persuaded about that part. And that's why I mentioned in the book Charles Grosvenor Osgood's Stone Lectures at Princeton in 1940 that were published in 1941, Poetry as a Means of Grace. Now, he wasn't arguing theologically in a technical sense poetry, was a means of grace. But he was arguing to the Princeton Divinity students that if they were to have a long and successful ministry, they should be lifelong readers of verse. Now, he said this in 1941, and you didn't have commercial television in most parts of the United States until the mid-1950s. So he was speaking in a literate culture to a literate culture and was still suggesting that prose alone wouldn't do it. And so... What would he say now, 60 and 70 years later, to a post-literate culture? He would be shouting what he said then. And so part of his thesis was 
that the preacher not only through careful study takes the Word of God in, he also, through preaching, pushes the Word of God out. And our use of English is informed by all of the exposure to English we have in our life. So the people like myself, a native Virginian, have a bit of Virginian angle. It's not as bad as it used to be, right? Because 15 years in New England and 20 in Western Pennsylvania have domesticated it in some sense. (laughs) But if you get people who stay around their home all their lives, whether in the British Isles or here, you can tell where they're from by their accent. And they didn't choose to have that accent. It's just that their brain synthesized all of what they'd heard and what went in came back out. So Osgood said, the poet is a person who's very concerned about how language sounds. It is a fundamentally oral discipline. And if preaching is itself an oral thing, then it is well for us if our syntax, our cadence, and our speech is influenced by those who devote themselves to how our language sounds. So if enough Milton comes into us, it's not that we're going to come back with iambic pentameter in a sermon, nor that Shakespeare's particular couplets will come out, that sort of a thing, a Shakespearean sonnet just show up in the middle. Um, The point would be, we will know when to speed up and when to slow down, what syllable to put the emphasis on. Mm -hmm. All of these things will be judgments that we will make without being conscious of making them. They are simply the residue and result of taking our own local parochial approach to the English language and augmenting it with 500 years Hmm. of most devoted people to how our language sounds. That's good. And so, on the worst counterexample to this, they sometimes encounter a preacher who works from a manuscript, has a bad case of stage fright, and if you were to close your eyes listening to him, he almost sounds like one of those computer programs that converts text mm. <laughs> to mm-hmm. oral English. Just the most horribly pedantic. Every yeah. sentence has about six syllables, yeah. right? There's no variety in sentence length, no variety at all in the rhythms, the cadences, the rising and falling of the voice, all the intonation and inflection that is so essential to oral communication working. So that's what Osgood was about. And he said, if you wish to read text carefully, poetry is very useful for you. And if you wish your own English eventually to be the kind of English that's easy to follow, then you will immerse yourself in the people who have devoted their lives to using it well. Mm. And if he said that in 1940, and it was true then, true enough to be the Stone Lectures, which puts it right up there with Kuiper, I suppose, then it is even more true today. And that's why I... I make a discipline out of reading the lyrics of John Bon Jovi. Yeah, um, right. I, found, I found that that well, helps my cadence. Got to start somewhere. Well, yeah, exactly. exactly. So I want, I want to shift gears real quick with you and ask you, in terms of, of worship, you wrote an article a while back on the case against exclusive psalmody, which I found very, right. very good, very helpful, and I've passed it along to others. So what would you say churches that do practice exclusive um, psalmody – What are they missing out on? Well, there's one thing they're definitely missing out on, and in most cases, a second thing that they're probably missing out on. The second thing is the Psalms are literary and theological units with only one or two exceptions. I think there's some debate as to whether Psalms 41 and 42 are one Psalm or two, but all the rest have a beginning, a middle, and the Mm -hmm. end, right? 
So, I mean, Psalm 8 is an obvious case. It begins, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. And it ends with, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. It's obviously got inclusio. It's intended to be read as a unit. So many exclusive psalmists are what I call exclusive partial psalmists. I see. Because they do not show respect for the theological and literary integrity of psalms, which is terribly critical with lament, because lament has you know five or six parts, but primarily two. It has the statement of complaint, the candid appeal to God, and the statement of trust. Only one of the 73 laments does not have a statement of trust. Mm. All the others do. Yeah. So if you divide the lament from the statement of trust, you either get whining on the one hand or fair-weather faith on the mm-hmm. other. The genius of that genre to combine the most candid, heart-wrenching expression of grief with the willingness to rest in Yahweh. And when you preach a sermon on the one without the other or sing the one without the other, you have altered, you've not only altered what it is, you have robbed it of its fundamental genius, I would argue. And I don't know anyone who sings entire psalms. If they do so, it's by accident. Most exclusive psalmists sing exclusively parts of psalms. So that's the smaller objection. The larger objection is the psalms themselves tell us that we are to celebrate God's acts in song, right? Right. Sing to the Lord a new song, tell of his salvation day by day. And so we have old hymns and songs in the Psalter that celebrate the deliverance from Egypt, the wandering through the wilderness, the provision of manna from heaven and so forth, the moving of the people from the Amharis from the land and so forth, all the way through return from Babylonian captivity. The Psalter itself always responds in liturgical adoration for new acts of judgment and deliverance. To think that the greatest act of judgment and deliverance, the death of Christ, judgment, and his resurrection, deliverance, would not be celebrated in song is contrary to the whole nature of the Psalter. It is unsaltery (laughs) to think that we wouldn't sing about the greatest thing God ever did. Right. And so the problem in terms of what it's missing is we now stop the history of redemption with the deliverance of the Egyptians from bondage. Yeah. And I don't think that's where the biblical narrative stops. Right, right. <laughs> I'm on a limb there, I know. <laughs> but I actually think the last Adam is more important than the fourth right. or fifth Hebrew king. Right, mm. yes. And connected to that, I would ask you, how awesome are drums? And banjos. That's more rhetorical, really. On my, I was going to say, you've got to understand Todd's in the PCA, but of course you're in the PCA as well, <laughs> so I have to be careful. Yeah, what's what's funny about all these instruments and so forth, part of it, of course, is not, it's the blindness that commercial, remember that marketers have a twofold task, not one. Of course, their major task is to get you to purchase their product. Mm -hmm. But their second task that's essential to it is to make you think it was your idea and not theirs. (laughs) Right? Right? So what happens is when people say, oh, this is great. They don't realize that someone caused them to think that, yeah. <laughs> right? That they think a highly amplified praise team banging the stuff to pieces, right, is lovelier than a mother sitting on the sofa with her eight-year-old daughter, whom she's been teaching to sing Ferris Lord Jesus, mm-hmm. and before retiring for the night, the two of them sing Ferris Lord Jesus. Mm-hmm. That is what God made man, male, and female for, 
what he told us to do when he said, fill the earth and exercise dominion. Mm -hmm. When a parent is singing a hymn to Christ to a young child, if that doesn't make your blood boil, then you may as well get fitted for the casket. Mm -hmm. I know, I was over at my sister's house this week, and my little two-year-old nephew was playing off in the corner, and the next thing you know, he's kind of singing, O Lamb of God, to himself. And I just thought, oh, the Lord must be so pleased to hear that beautiful music coming out of this little two-year-old who was just in trouble a second ago. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Todd, I don't know if you and Carl have seen it, but, you know, as you're pastoring and leading in worship, Every now and then when you're looking out there, some of the little ones, the little toddlers in the church, you know, maybe somewhere between two and four, at some point these little ones have been to church long enough that even though they don't read, they join us in things like Absolutely. the Gloria Patri mm-hmm. or uh, the doxology. Right. Because mm-hmm. they've, they've learned it by – and you look out there one day, and there's the Smith family, you know, in stair steps down from age 16 down to a four-year-old. And the little four-year-old has his head back like a bird waiting for mother mm-hmm. to put a worm in it. <laughs> and his little head is back, and he's singing, praise God from whom all blessings flow, yeah. right? Yeah. And as a pastor, you guys are probably like me. As a pastor, you almost weep at that moment. Yeah. When you see those little ones out there doing that. Yeah, my, my daughter knew holy, holy, holy before she was taught formally how to read. Mm-hmm. Yep. And so, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's right. So what happens is the commercial forces, of course, want us to sing with instrumental accompaniment. That way they can sell us amplifiers, drum sets, <laughs> and so forth, right? The last thing they would want would be a congregation of a cappella singers, <laughs> Because then they couldn't sell us any of this stuff. Right, right. right. But if people were trained in music the way Luther said they ought to be, mm-hmm. they could do so. In, yeah. And in many of the RPNA churches, you know, our covenanter friends who are exclusive psalmists, mm-hmm. they don't have musical accompaniment. Mm-hmm. Some of them permit a pitch pipe. Others regard that as unbiblical also, and they just find someone with pitch to stand in front and give them the note. <laughs> so they'll trust there in one sing, person. They sing psalms in four parts without any musical accompaniment. Right. They don't need instrumental accompaniment. Right. But if I were selling drums and if I were selling amplifiers and I were selling pickups and so forth, and I was selling all these kind of things necessary to amplify this music and send it out, I'd want to bombard people with that kind of thing so that they think that's what music is. Yeah. Wow. Well, I feel like we have a lot more we can talk about today, and I need to wrap things up. But thank you so much, David, for coming on today to talk with us. Yeah, you're welcome. I'm excited that we get to offer, since we do have more that could be talked about, we're going to offer your book, Why Johnny Can't Preach, as a gift for some who signed up to win it over at our website, mortificationofspin.org. And while you're there, you can read some articles written by Carl and Todd and I. You can listen to the podcast on the website, and you could also leave a donation. We're sitting here podcasting out of my house today. Yes. And, and we need a professional studio, people. We need a professional studio. So. That's right. With drums. The whole drums. With drums. We need to amplify this. So, um... Thanks for listening, and we will talk to you next time. Thanks for listening to Mortification of Spin, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. 
visit the podcast page and blog at mortificationofspin.org, where we'll have links and other articles from Amy, Carl, and Todd. And while you're there, please subscribe and consider making a donation. And be sure to listen next time when Carl, Todd, and Amy talk about Is Harvey Weinstein guilty only of taking seriously the philosophy of sex, which most of his victims and critics seem to have been very happy to promote in the movies that they have made? Where you had magazines sitting uh, next to each other, one with Harvey Weinstein on the cover and the other with a eulogy of Hugh Hefner. Because people are so hyper-sexualizing every single thing. You know, you won't even touch a single woman and it starves them really of any kind of companionship with anyone we'll talk to you next time on mortification of spin hello Hey, David. It's Carl here. Hey, Carl. Carl, it's Mike. Oh. oh sorry, Mike. It's, it's a delight. We you want more? Can, can you do a T. David Gordon impression for the next half hour? Hey, David, are you cheating on me? <laughs> if you can do a TD impression, we'll have you on it's instead. It's too early for these hey, mistakes. Hey, that's a thought. That's a thought. You know, uh, wh- why Mike can't impersonate? I could do a book like that. Oh, fantastic. Mike, so what are you doing at T. David Gordon's house? You know, it's it's eerie. I was worried he's not sanctified enough, so I was going to check it out. Uh, a long way to flee from Florida to avoid the hurricane. Yeah, Mike, we just That's could not right. stay away. I mean, we talked to you once and you just have us coming back. So, so. Uh, hey, there you go. Hey, best of wishes okay. getting okay. a hold of him. I'll yeah. let y'all go. Thanks, Thanks. Good talking to you again. <laughs> Oh, that's funny. Carl, this is Mike. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, well, good to talk to you. (laughs) Welcome back.